Hey there, SLP. You are listening to this podcast, so I know that you love to listen to podcasts. And if that is the case, then I know that you are going to love my secret private podcast, Secondary Secrets for SLPs. It's six short episodes that will have you walking away feeling refreshed and inspired and ready to take on those challenging secondary speech students. So if you work with grades four through 12 and are in a planning rut or wanting some fresh new ideas to keep your students motivated, make sure you head to speechtimefun.com slash secondary secrets. You are not going to find this podcast in your iTunes podcast search browser. You can only get access by going to that link. So head to it now. It is six short episodes that you can listen to it in under an hour, like totally Netflix binge-worthy. I made this just for you, and I know you are going to love it. SLPs have been telling me already that it has changed their way for working with their older speech students. So head on over, again, to speechtimefund.com slash secondarysecrets, or use the link in the show notes, and I can't wait to hear what you think. Now let's head on to this week's episode of SLP Coffee Talk. You are listening to SLP Coffee Talk. I am your host, Hallie Sherman, and I am a licensed speech-language pathologist who is in the trenches working full-time in a public school in New York. I am the author of the blog and Teachers Pay Teachers store, Speech Time Fun, where I love helping other SLPs conquer the overwhelm and get back hours spent on prepping activities. I am here to help you be the best SLP you can be and have fun while doing it. Just like your morning cup of coffee, this podcast is just what you need to start the day or week. Let's jump into today's Coffee Talk. Hey, hey, and welcome to another episode of SLP Coffee Talk. Another week where I have another awesome guest here to inspire you and push you to be the best SLP you can be. So this week I have for you Meg Proctor from Learn, Play, Thrive. Meg, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your journey to where you are today in your career. Yeah. So, I mean, if I were to work backwards a little bit for you right now, what I do is I run my business, which is called Learn, Play, Thrive, which is sort of a hub for neurodiversity affirming continuing education courses for OTs and speech language pathologists. But it's funny because when I was in graduate school, I said, I don't want to work with autistic kids. I'm just not good at it. So I'll give you the short version of my journey from there to here with the disclaimer that I do say autistic. I use identity first language because that's the preference of most people in the autistic community. And there's some good research that Person-first language reduces stigma because we use identity-first language when we're saying something is bad. Like, it's not okay to be autistic. We have to separate you from it. It's okay to be neurotypical. So we use identity-first. And autistic people generally say, actually, you can't separate me from my autism and I don't want to be. So you'll hear me say autistic. Just my disclaimer for you, if that's unfamiliar for some folks. So I'm an OT. I finished OT school and I started an early intervention. I tried schools and clinics and every setting. And I kind of felt like I didn't know what I was doing. Is that relatable to you? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Very relatable. Yeah. And it was really stressful because it felt like I had the chance to really be impactful. And everything I had seen modeled was based in behaviorism or in 
other really outdated models that didn't resonate with my own personal ethics and what I felt like I should be doing and what seemed like it would actually support my clients to participate more fully and meaningfully in their lives. But like so many folks, I also felt like I didn't have the skills to do anything differently. So eventually after doing my best for a number of years, I got a faculty position at UNC Chapel Hill's Teach Autism program. And I got all of this training on autism learning styles and really looking at autism as a way of thinking and learning and being in the world and using approaches that were based on how autistic kids think and learn. And it was great. I suddenly felt so much better about the work I was doing because I felt like I had some tools that uh, really landed and that weren't as based on compliance or sort of manipulation as a lot of the things I had seen modeled. I eventually left there. I started Learn Play Thrive and I sort of transformed it into even more of a neurodiversity affirming approach, meaning that I listened to the autistic community and I try to be really reflective of teaching ways of working with autistic kids that don't ask them to change who they are, that respect who they are fundamentally. So my business has just grown and grown and grown. And we just offer continuing education courses and a lot of free resources to folks out there who want to practice differently. Where was like your first place where you went to to learn more about this? Because it's still very new in the speech world and in special education in general, the whole neuro affirming, diversity affirming. Yeah. I mean, I went to autistic people first. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I started talking to Sarah Salvaggi Hernandez, who's an autistic OT. I wound up starting my podcast, which is two sides of the spectrum where I mostly interview autistic people or maybe like around right now, 25% of the guests are not autistic, but are trying to change practice for OTs and speech language pathologists. So I really turned to autistic people because they're the experts on autism. It's amazing. What was your first like aha moment? They realized like, oh, I should be doing things differently. There were so many. One of them was when I read an article on strengths-based approaches from Dr. Christy Patton. She's not autistic, but she also listens to the autistic community and really collaborates. She's the head of OT at NYU and a really big advocate for strengths-based approaches. And she said, we don't build our lives based on our deficits. And it made me really turn the mirror on what I was teaching and what I had been doing in my work and thinking about what that would feel like in my own life. If somebody took the things that I'm just inherently the worst at, like recognizing people's faces and learning their names, memorizing directions, I have plenty of things I'm bad at. If you had spent 20 hours a week with me as a child trying to remediate those, well, I would have learned to dislike myself and to think that I'm not good at things. And it would have taken away from the things that I was actually doing, which was cultivating my strengths that I've actually built my life on. And I just accommodate for all those things that I was never good at and will never be good at. I think the way she framed it really drove it home for me. And I immediately had to re-record like everything that I was teaching (laughs) and that's happened over and over again. I say had to, I immediately got to, I got to take a new look at what I was teaching and do it better. I love it that you learned and you're sharing what you've learned. So others can change their practices as well to better support their clients, students, families they're working with. That's amazing. 
Yeah. I think the most fun part about it is that when one, I'm not the only one teaching now. I do have autistic instructors and speech language pathologists who are instructors, but it's like people were hungry for this. You know, I expected all of this backlash. The first sort of controversial thing I started saying really loudly was that we shouldn't move autistic kids' bodies for them. You know, we call it hand over hand Mm -hmm. assistance, but really it's us violating their personal autonomy to make them do something that they haven't necessarily consented to do. And I just waited for everybody to be defensive. And instead people were like, you're so right. I can't believe we as a profession do this. I'm not going to do that anymore. And I can't wait to learn what I can do instead. Because I think at our core as therapists, we don't want to cause harm. We do want to support authentic and joyful participation. And when we know better, we really do better. So watching people reflect and change with openness is so hopeful and so inspiring. So true. Can you give another example other than like the hand over hand where you and you know others have made mistakes in how to treat autistic children? So uh, there's a whole kind of category of behavioral-based approaches, like using rewards and reinforcers, planned ignoring, even the way we use first then, where we take something a child loves and dangle it like the carrot at the end of a stick to get them to do something we want to do. My more nuanced answer to you of things that took a lot more work for me to unlearn relates to the ways that we teach autistic kids to mask their autism and to appear more neurotypical. So things like teaching, quote, social skills. What we know is that autistic kids have social skills and those social skills work fine in groups with other autistic kids, just like neurotypical kids have social skills that work for other neurotypical people. Autistic kids can also take the perspective pretty easily of other autistic people, just not of neurotypicals. Neurotypicals cannot very easily take the perspective of Uh, neurodivergent people. So what we've really been doing with a lot of our work around social skills is imposing one way of being on another culture. And the research plays out exactly what you would expect with this, that it results in PTSD, depression, higher rates of suicide. When you teach somebody to be inauthentic and to perform, to make others around them more comfortable, it has really negative impact on their well-being. And we don't know we're doing it because we can't see outside of our own lens, our own neurotypical perspective. So that's really taken some work. I've learned a lot from autistic SLP, Rachel Dorsey in this area. And I just, I continue to say, Rachel, like, tell me how I've gotten this wrong and then try and own that and do something different. She's amazing. By the time of this recording is live, her episode has already aired. So guys, go check out Rachel's episode on SLP Coffee Talk if you want want to know exactly what she's talking about. But Rachel is a great resource of an SLP with autism who can share her expertise and knowledge on being on both sides. Yeah, she's really good. She teaches a course for Learn, Play, Thrive on goal writing, on strengths-based goal writing that I never could have created that course. It is, I said, Rachel, you should be a professor. And she was like, oh, both my parents are professors. Everybody's a professor. She's the kind of person who really likes to go really deep on a topic. And she has more insight than I'll ever have. So I'm sure it's a great episode. (laughs) Have you ever had any kickback or 
parents of children you're working with that are just not in agreement or unsure or need a little bit more handholding and push for this approach? I feel like I live in a bubble. I think the people who are drawn to learn play thrive are the people who are drawn to learn play thrive. Mm-hmm. I have a big social media presence. So I occasionally get this pushback on identity first language that usually sounds like, no, I'm a new graduate and my professors just told me person first language. So it must be right. And it's <laughs> okay. Um, And I mean, there's some defensiveness sometimes it's more complicated with parents who say, well, this strategy that you're saying is harmful, quote unquote, worked for my child. And I'm not going really deep in Instagram comments into a lot of these conversations just because that's a hard place to have those conversations. But what I would encourage them to do is question what it means that it worked. Like what was the outcome we were looking for? Does the child more fully understand and respect and accept themselves? Or are they just not showing us as many of the behaviors that made us uncomfortable or that we didn't expect? And if so, at what cost? I do get some negative feedback sometimes from autistic advocates and I stop and listen. And people who just love Learn, Play, Thrive will message me and go, oh my gosh, Meg, somebody's saying something negative about your course. And I'm like, oh, great. Send it to me. I want to hear that feedback. This is an important conversation. It's just part of it. So yes, to listen it's and grow. learning and growing and also knowing the other side of the conversation and knowing what more education needs to be out there on yourself or others. So yeah, it is funny when you ask that question, I was trying to genuinely think about the like controversies we've gotten embroiled in. I was like, we almost made a post that voices from the autistic community that accidentally was very white and had poor BIPOC representation. And we had reached out to a really diverse sample of autistic people. We just had at that point only heard back from white autistic people. And I think when we sent out the final copy for the post, almost everybody replied and was like, I don't want to be on this post if you're only representing white autistic voices. And again, we said, thank you. We're not going to post it. We're going to do this better. So I feel like a lot of the pushback I've gotten has just been pushed back, holding me accountable to my own values. And I love it that you're using your platform to educate and educating yourself and not holding back and being okay with some people might not agree, but you're doing what's best for your clients. So that's amazing. What are some, as an OT, there's a lot of SLPs listening that work in the schools, work with OTs, are working on helping with modifications and accommodations in the classroom to help their students thrive and succeed. What are some strategies that would be more appropriate for their students these settings? Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on what you're working on, but the sort of key strategies we can use as a starting point is to look at a child's interests and emerging skills. Because often when we start to pile on all of these compliance-based strategies, rewards, reinforcers, punishments, after you do this, you can do that. We've lost sight of what the child is ready to learn and what their own goals for themselves are. So if it's really not an emerging skill, they might just not be ready to learn it no matter how many behavioral things we pile onto it. And if it doesn't really connect to their own interests and goals for themselves, it's a lot harder to learn. So kind of coming back to self-determination theory and learning about the child, what do they love? What do they want? Why do they want it? And how can we start there instead of starting with, 
I don't know, a developmental assessment that tells them what they should be doing. I think we need to ask why, why am I doing this? Is this going to improve the child's life or is this going to make me feel like a good therapist or is this just what I do? Cause it's what I've always done. So yeah, starting with what the child is ready for, what's meaningful and, and also questioning our own motives with what we're teaching. So since so many people listening are so used to if then charts and token economies, what are some strategies to get students motivated and engaged to work with us? Yeah. So executive function supports go a long way. Imagine if you had a project at work and it was a big project and it was a big mess. And somebody said, Hey, you need to do this project. Okay. And you looked at it and you couldn't see how to get started. You couldn't see what the steps were. You couldn't see that it would ever be finished. You couldn't really tell what the details were, what the big picture was. I mean, are you getting anxious? Mm -hmm. Right? Like you might go um, dust your bookshelf or something, right? Just do anything to avoid this project. Might even do laundry. like <laughs> Right. Seriously. Yeah. And so that's often what a new activity or a challenging activity can feel like to our autistic kids whose executive function skills are just really different, especially our folks who are autistic and have ADHD, but all of our autistic folks are going to have different executive function skills. And sometimes it's as simple as being able to clearly and meaningfully show, not tell, but show how the activity works, what the steps are, when it's going to be finished using fewer materials, setting them up in a really visually clear way. So you look at it and you go, oh, I can see what I'm going to do. And I can see how many times I'm going to do it. And I can see this is going to be done. And I know when it's going to be done, we are going to move it off my desk and put it over there, like checking it off of a to-do list. So having a really clear understanding of how a child makes meaning, because that's not often through listening to you talk them through it. A lot of SLPs especially do so much talking when our kids aren't processing all of that language. And sometimes it's not through written lists and sometimes it's not even through pictures. Sometimes it's through the most concrete way that we're actually showing the materials themselves. But honestly, having something that is an emerging skill relates to the child's interests and is set up in a way that they can see what to do is very often all that we need to help them feel confident in trying a new activity. I love it. I love that whole executive functioning strategies and like the plan C do like really mapping it out so they can visually see what is expected and what it looks like to be done and help them get there. That's more important than teaching them to perspective take and some of the things we often find ourselves working on with students. Yeah. And it's more important than teaching them to comply and to just to put themselves second to the demands of neurotypical adults. And that could be hard. What are some strategies to teach them how to comply? No, I'm saying this is more important than teaching compliance. Mm-hmm. I think compliance is not the goal. <laughs> so, um, I, I was quoting Amy yeah. Laurent there from <laughs> Autism Level Up. She has a really good TED Talk called Compliance is Not the Goal. So all of those behavioral yeah. strategies are teaching compliance. And I don't think that's what we should be teaching no. at all. Exactly. So, so true. So, so true. And, and by teaching them the way they need to be taught, we'll have better results and more motivation from them as well and using their interests. Right. Do you have any favorite activities? 
I, uh, let's see, I did do a, a Lego based leisure group once that was really fun. And that's sort of the antidote to social skills groups is having groups where kids can engage in their strong interests together with other people who love the same thing. And sometimes there are social barriers that come up that we have to problem solve then in the actual real context, because it helps the child meet their goal. And that's not a one-way thing that the autistic person has to change. Everybody can do perspective taking. But when I worked in the schools, I did do this middle school after school Lego builders club that was really fun. And the kids worked on structured teams. It was based on the research of Dr. Daniel Legoff, which I haven't, his name has Lego in it. It's very um, amazing. Strange (laughs) coincidence. Yeah. It's amazing. I haven't revisited it to like analyze how neurodiversity affirming it is, but the general structure of it was nice because one kid was the part supplier and one kid was the engineer and one kid was the builder. And they worked on these teams to build together. And it was beautiful. My group was usually autistic only, And they, we just watch them be fully themselves and build Legos together. And I loved it. That's one of my favorite things. Legos is huge in my building. We have, especially in the wintertime, lunch bunch students in the psych office building away, you know, pre-COVID times more, but (laughs) that's great. They all find other peers that have a similar interest, which is so amazing. So it is. So. Yeah, that's how we build relationships. And that's especially how autistic people build relationships based on things they love, not on chit chat. <laughs> really? <No. laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's such a great reminder that we have to be more aware of how verbal we are oh, with yeah. these students, even more than others, because that's not the way to communicate to everyone. That's the way we communicate, but that's not the best way for everyone. We have a lot of work to do on our perspective taking skills. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. What's another piece of advice that you would like to give SLPs listening that is just still learning about this perspective and trying to just be the best for their students? So I I think my first piece of advice was listening to autistic voices, right? And then I've also kind of said we need to seek out a new skill set, that is neurodiversity affirming. But the other piece that sort of goes in the middle is being kind to yourself and not saying, oh my gosh, I've been doing harm and kind of freezing up, feeling like it's hard to do your job, but just saying, okay, I did the best I could. And now that I'm learning, let me do something better and different. It isn't a natural process. And so we actually have to really do the work of listening and learning and learning new tools. Most of what we learned in school isn't going to help us. And a lot of our continuing education courses aren't going to help us here. So finding the right people who could teach us practical skills that we can use in our sessions, but that are also aligned with our values as we're learning more about our own values. So, so true. And I think it's just a lot of education is needed that our approaches just needs to be different. We can have the same outcome, just the approach has to be different. Uh, sometimes the outcomes need to change. Yeah. Well, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Depending on the student and the situation, but yes, yes, yes. Um, (laughs) like we we are so used to having, needing our students to sit in a chair and attend and participate. And that might not be the best outcome for that student. And it's a lot of just education and training of staff and administration and parents and paraprofessionals and everyone working with those students. So And seeing autism as a culture and seeing neurotypicality as a culture and learning to respect, to have some cultural competence and and respect around that. 
For anyone wanting to learn more about this topic and get resources, what are your recommendations? So we're at learnplaythrive.com. We have free trainings. We have paid continuing education courses. Michael, I remember when I was, especially when I was new taking continuing education courses that would give me theory and I'd be like, yes. And then the course would end. And I was like, no, I still don't know what to do in my session tomorrow. So we're very committed to courses that are neurodiversity affirming, but also extremely practical and really fill people's toolboxes up and reinvigorate them about their work because they can feel like they know what to do and feel good about what they're doing. So right now we have a course on AAC called Authentic AAC taught by Kate McLaughlin. She's the AAC coach on social media. We have Rachel Dorsey's course on strengths-based school writing. And then I teach a course called the Learn, Play, Thrive Approach to Autism with some support from Rachel and an autistic OT as well. And mine is more about how can we use a strength-based lens? And then what does that actually look like? What does it look like to set up our learning activities and our schedules and our to-do lists in a way that builds from a particular client's strengths? So they're all really practical, all registered for AOT and ASHA CEUs. And then on Instagram, I'm Learn Play Thrive. We share lots of practical ideas and sort of big paradigm shifts there every day. And I have a Facebook group called Learn, Play, and Thrive Autism Resources for Professionals. That's amazing. So all great resources to share with your colleagues, share with your administration, share with yourself, share with a SLP bestie. <laughs> and let me screenshot this episode on whatever podcast platform you're listening to and let them know to come listen and learn more about this topic. So thank you Meg, for coming on the show and teaching us so much and opening our eyes on a topic that is needed. Yeah, this is great. So I always end my episodes with a joke because it's humor and this episode goes live on a Monday. So we all could use the jolt of inspiration. Why can't Cinderella play soccer? Mm, why? Because she's always running away from the ball. <laughs> I am cheesy. I never said it's not. <laughs> I have a two and a four-year-old. So that was a little bit refreshing because it was like slightly above four-year-old level. There was, <laughs> there was no poop in it. So I, I thought it was great. <laughs> I have a three and a seven-year-old. So the Cinderella on Amazon is on replay often in my house. So <laughs> highly recommend that Cinderella version if you haven't seen it yet. It's very good. But thank you so much, Meg, and everyone listening. Tell a friend, tell yourself, go check out those future previous episodes if you haven't yet, make sure you're following along on click follow button, whatever it is on iTunes. And I'll see you next week. Until then, stay out of trouble. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of SLP Coffee Talk. It means the world to me that you're tuning in each and every week and getting the jolt of inspiration you need. You can find all of the links and information mentioned in this episode at my website, speechtimefun.com. Don't forget to follow the show so you don't miss any future episodes. And while you're there, it would mean the world to me if you would take a few seconds and leave me an honest review. See you next week with another episode full of fun and inspiration from one SLP to another. Have fun, guys.